Thank you, Seth, and the worship team for the time and effort you put in to help us worship Christ and to turn our eyes to Him. And indeed, we uh, want to turn our eyes to Christ as we look to His Word. And so I invite you to bow with me in a word of prayer as we approach the Word of God this morning. Oh God in heaven, we open your word with fear and trembling, with anticipation, with humility. We recognize that it is just words on a page unless your spirit illumines it to us. So we ask this morning that you would enable any distractions, any blinders that would keep us from your holy and inspired and authoritative word would be removed by your spirit. Father, we want to see Christ. We want to hear from him. And I pray that you would do that now in this place. It's in his mighty name we pray. Amen. On the night before Jesus was crucified, he spoke with his disciples in the upper room. as recorded in John chapter 13 through 16. And there he taught his disciples that they would be known to the world by their love. He said, they will know that you are my disciples by your love for one another. This love would first and foremost be a love for God. But secondly, it would be a love for one another as Jesus specified. And thirdly, it would be a love for the people of the world. Now in the last two millennia, the church has had seasons of shining this light with beautiful brilliance. In fact, we have testimony of the early church displaying this exemplary love. Love for orphans, love for widows, love for abandoned children, love for their neighbor, and love for one another. But we also have record of times in the last two millennia when the church was not known by its love, is known more for its hostility to other groups. I think of the Roman Catholic Church throughout the Middle Ages and through its love of wealth and prestige and power and dominance, it often persecuted true believers who dissented from the status quo, even when they were seeking to be faithful to Scripture. That was a church not known by its love. Well, today we can find some of the same reputations, can we not? Many times churches are known by their love. Their love for one another, the warmth that is found between believers. People can step into a church and feel it, can know it, can see it. Can also see their love for those around them. But unfortunately, churches can also gain reputations for not being loving for the clickishness, for the keeping other people out of relationships, for the infighting, the bickering, and closed hearts to the needs of others. Today, we're looking at a passage of Scripture that is no doubt familiar to you, but it's one that addresses this issue for us to be a community of loving people. The parable of the Good Samaritan is one of the most popular and well-known stories that Jesus told. This simple yet profound narrative has captivated readers ever since Luke recorded it. And it's through this simple story 
that Jesus calls his followers, his disciples, to not just ordinary, easy love, but to radical, difficult, inconvenient love. And so our passage this morning will challenge each one of us to ask ourselves the questions of whether we're truly loving as Christ calls us to. And thus we need to examine our hearts and lives in light of God's word. And so I invite you, if you're not there already, to turn to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. You'll find on the Pew Bible in front of you on page 1032, if you didn't happen to bring a Bible with you. It's been two months since we've been in the book of Luke, through Advent and other things have kept us from being here in this book, but we are continuing to exposit this great gospel verse by verse. And today we find ourselves at the familiar passage of the parable of the Good Samaritan. This story is found in the midst of a section of Luke's gospel known as the travel narrative. It's a travel narrative because Jesus is traveling towards Jerusalem. In Luke chapter 9, verse 51, it says that Jesus, knowing that his time was coming for him to ascend again, to depart, he set his face like flint to go to Jerusalem. He knew what awaited him there. He knew that the, the cross was there for him, but he set his face like flint. He was determined to press on and go forward with what God had called him to do. And so from Luke chapter 9, verse 51, all the way through uh, Luke 19, verse 27, Jesus is on this trek to go to the cross. And so this story is told in the midst of Jesus' traveling in a broad sense to Jerusalem. And so let's begin by reading the text for us. Uh, follow along as I read. Luke chapter 10, we'll begin in verse 25 and go through verse 37. And behold... A lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave him them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever you, more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three, do you think, proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. 
This vignette here in the life of Christ lays upon us two truths that we must understand in order to be people of love that Christ calls us to. Two truths we must understand in order, in order to be the people of love that Christ calls us to. The first truth this passage lays upon us is this, that our inability to love as we ought. Our inability to love as we ought in verses 25 through 28. This passage begins by introducing us to a man who is a lawyer. It says, behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test. Now, this is not a lawyer as we would typically think, a criminal lawyer or civil lawyer. This is rather a, an expert in the law, someone who knew the law of Moses. And so he was a religious leader, a, potentially a scribe, well-versed in the Mosaic law of the Old Testament. The Legacy Standard Bible translates it as a scholar of the law. This man stands up to ask Jesus a question. Now, this might look like he's interrupting, like he's showing disrespect to Jesus. But really, in this time, it was a sign of respect to stand up and to ask a question of the teacher. In addition to his standing up to address Jesus, he calls him teacher, which in Luke's gospel is equivalent to rabbi. He basically is addressing him with a term of respect, recognizing the knowledge Jesus has of the law, recognizing the teaching that he gives. And so those witnessing the event would have had the sense that, wow, this man is giving some respect to Jesus and is about to ask him a, a serious question. But Luke lets us know that there's more going on below the surface, that this man is not all he seems to be. He wants to trap Jesus with his words. It says to put him to the test. He wanted to come out on top in this theological debate. He was going to spar with this new traveling rabbi. It says, verse 25, the lawyer asked Jesus, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now on its face, this is a foolish question. Inheritances can't be earned, right? You are... You either are part of the family and you inherit it by the nature of your, of your family status or not. But this man clearly wants to know how eternal life could be his. Interestingly, this question is identical to this, as the one that the rich young ruler asked Jesus. And we'll see that in Luke chapter 18. In each case, the inquisitor wants to know the path to eternal life. Now, this idea of inheriting eternal life has its roots in the Old Testament, right? If we're talking about a man who knows the law and he's asking Jesus a spiritual uh, question, then it would make sense that it would have its roots in their scriptures. You see, the prophets spoke of a time when the Messiah would come and would reign upon the earth and would set up his kingdom and righteous, the righteous would live in the land secured forevermore. Daniel 12, in particular, records that there's a future resurrection of the righteous to everlasting life, and there's a resurrection of the unrighteous to shame and contempt. And so the Jews of Jesus' time knew that depending on how they lived, whether they were righteous or unrighteous, they would end up participating in one of these two resurrections, either one to everlasting life or one to shame and contempt. And so this man is asking how he might inherit that resurrection unto everlasting life. This is basically then an equivalent question to how, asking how he might be saved. He wants to know 
Jesus, how can I be saved? How can I be guaranteed and sure of my place in the eternal kingdom? Now, the rabbis at the time taught that if you were born a Jew, your lineage would secure your place in this everlasting kingdom or all the other things that were included in Judaism, the circumcision, the traditions. But even with all of that assurances given by the religious system of the day, this man clearly still had questions. Jesus takes the question in stride, and as he so often does, he doesn't give an immediate answer. He responds with a question. He asks, what is written in the law? How do you read it? Jesus knows who this man is. He knows where his strengths lie, and he, he draws him back to the authoritative word of God. This shows Jesus' respect of the Old Testament. That the word of the Old Testament is the divine revelation of God given to know salvation. This was the shared source of authority between the two men. And so he expected them, him and the other contemporaries, to read the Old Testament. He often asked the religious leaders, have you not read? Fully expecting them to have read what was already written. Well, this man was glad to answer. To show off his knowledge of what he knows of this law. Look what it says in verse 27. It says, and he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. This lawyer responds by quoting two verses. One in Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 5 and the other Leviticus 19.18. These two verses taken together represent the whole duty of man. They represent all that God expects of mankind. In fact, it was in Matthew 22 that Jesus designates these exact same commands as the first and second great commandments. When asked, what is the greatest commandment? He quotes Deuteronomy 6.5 from the Shema saying, they shall love the Lord their God. And then he says, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself, quoting Leviticus 19.18. It's very possible. Jesus, having given this kind of answer, that this lawyer is actually repeating back to Jesus the answer he's heard Jesus give in another place. In other words, he wants to impress Jesus. Oh, I've heard you before, Rabbi. I know how to answer this. But as Jesus said, it is upon these two commands that hang the whole law and the prophets. In other words, he's saying this is all that is required of man can be summed up in these two commands. Either it has to do with our vertical relationship with God or our horizontal relationship with mankind. We must be rightly related to God and rightly related to one another. And we don't do that on our own terms. We don't do that by our own standard. We do it on God's standard. And so this is the high standard to which God calls all people. And so Jesus, rightly in verse 28, says to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Jesus here, in one sense, simply states what Leviticus 18, 5 says, which says, you shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If any person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. Jesus gives this man a simple call to obey the law. He says, all right, yes, you've answered correctly, so just do that. Now, it's clear by Jesus' statement 
that this man's knowledge of the law was clear, but his obedience to it or his performance of these commands was not yet clear. And so Jesus urges him to do these things. By doing this, by telling this man to go out and perform these duties of the law, Jesus was using the law to teach this man that he was unable to keep it. The Bible says that even though the law is holy and righteous and good, Romans chapter 7 verse 12, it is a standard of perfection that is a mirror and shows each of us our sin. In other words, as we look at the Word of God and we see all of its standards before us, we recognize that we do not measure up and therefore, as we look at the law, we see reflected back on us our failure to meet it. Each of us falls short of God's standard. The law promises life, but when we try to live up to it, we find ourselves only falling short. We find ourselves only in sin. That's why Paul says in Romans chapter 7, verse 10, he says, the very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. This great commandment, the word of God, which is holy and righteous and good, this Old Testament scriptures, it proved to be death because of sin. And when the law reveals our sin and our spiritual deadness, then we have nowhere else to go but to Christ, right? Paul in Galatians chapter 3 describes the law as a guardian, guiding us and leading us to get to Christ. And so by commending the law to this lawyer, Jesus wanted this man to come face to face with God's holy and righteous standard of perfection. And the thing is that this man would have truly seen it for what it is, would have truly measured his life up against this standard to love God with all that he has and to love others as himself, he would have recognized his inability to keep that law and therefore to inherit eternal life. In other words, Jesus wanted this man to hear his words, for Jesus to say, do this and you will live, and for this man to cry out, but Lord, I can't keep these commandments. I've tried. I've tried my entire life, and yet I continually fall short. Friends, this is exactly the cry of our own hearts. This is the cry that our hearts should have to Christ. As we look at God's holy word, we recognize that we fall short too. We do not love as these verses call us to love. The verse from Deuteronomy chapter 6 commands us to love God with all that we are. It's a total devotion to God. This is, loving God is not just to be a side hobby for us. It's not just to be something where we give a little bit of our spiritual life to him. But that the Lord owns us and we offer ourselves to him. That's why he says, with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. These are all trying to encapsulate this reality that everywhere we turn and we say, well, what about this part for me and this part for God? And God says, no, I want it all. You love me with all that you are. Give it all to me. Our bodies, our minds, our hearts, our hands must be devoted to loving God at all times. He's to be our number one focus. He's to be our first priority. He must be our greatest delight at all times. We must desire to do his will at all times. 
And so I ask you, is that true of you? Do you love God with all that you are at all times? I didn't think so. It's not true of me either. We fall so short, so, so short of giving the affection to God that he deserves. Even when we try, we go, oh, I want to give love to God. And then we reach down into our hearts and we go, okay, what's there? What can I pull out of the well to give to God? It's meager, isn't it? It's cold. We don't have the love that we want to give to him, even though we know we should. He deserves it. He's done. He's created us. He's redeemed us. And so, friends, we must see that this failure to give love to God as he deserves is not just a mistake or an oops. This is a sin before a holy God. He has commanded us to love him as he deserves and with all that we are, and we fail to do that. Failure to do so is sin. But we're not only condemned by the first greatest commandment, we're condemned also by the second. We don't love other people as we should. We don't have the heart of compassion that we need to have. I mean, let's be honest, we can't even love the people that we're supposed to love the most, the people that live in our homes and are part of our family that very, by natural relations, we should have the greatest love for, and yet we're selfish in our actions towards them. We don't love them as ourselves as we should. The point that Jesus is looking to drive home, and you will drive home even further with the parable he's about to tell, is that we must love with great compassion, but we fall short of doing so. And so the point that we must first see here that Jesus wanted this lawyer to see is that we are unable to love as we ought. We stand condemned by God's moral standard. We can't simply love enough to gain God's approval. Paul says in Romans 3 verse 20, by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Simply trying to obey the law on our own does not result in justification. And so friends, what, the, what we must do and what is what this lawyer did not. We must look to Jesus for our salvation. This lawyer should have dropped on his knees and cried out to Jesus for forgiveness. We must confess our sin to him, asking that he would forgive us. We must admit that we have transgressed his law. We must be honest with ourselves before God that we do not live up to his standard, that we fall short. And as we know from Jesus' other teaching, that it is only through him and believing in him that we have eternal life. John chapter 5, verse 24, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Life comes through believing in Christ and thus believing in the Father. And so this passage first lays upon us the truth of our inability to love as we ought. But secondly, there's a second truth that lays upon us. And that is our responsibility to love all those in need. Our responsibility to love all those in need. And we see this in verses 29 through 37. The dialogue continues. Jesus has just completed. There's one section of dialogue that is there, and Jesus gives a command. But then it picks up again, 
And it will end again in verse 37 with Jesus giving another command. There's a clear symmetry between these sections of dialogue. But as we launch into verse 29, this next section of dialogue, we see that the character of this man continues to be revealed. It says, verse 29, but he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, who is my neighbor? In other words, this man looks at the standard of God's word to love God and to love others, and he might start to squirm a little bit, but he believes he's still a really good person. And he's a really righteous person. He's done, he does a lot of good things. And so to try to make him fit and match the standard, he seeks to ask what might be looked like simply a clarifying question. But as Luke reveals to us, it's more than just clarity he's looking for. He's looking for justification. In fact, he's looking to justify himself. He's looking to declare himself righteous. What sinners need is for God to declare us righteous by nature of our faith. But friends, before we judge this man for his insidious uh, motives, we need to recognize that this is the desire of every human being. We want to think better of ourselves, do we not? We don't like to admit that we're doing something wrong. We don't like that feeling that we're not measuring up. And so we like to prove ourselves to be righteous. We take comfort in our own good deeds. And we do this in a variety of ways. We compare ourselves with others, right? I'm not as bad as that other person. Uh, another one is that we emphasize the disobedience of somebody else. We say, well, yeah, well, look at them. Look at all the things that they're doing and never turn the finger back on ourselves. We downplay or excuse our sin. We think, well, it's not that bad. Listen, the reason I had to do X, Y, and Z was because of these circumstances in my life and because of those things I had to do these. And so, I, you know, one sense my arm was twisted, I had to do these. And so we, we, we find a way to excuse it. There were other extenuating circumstances that forced my hand. Or we just flat out blame our sins on others, right? We saw this from the garden very, the very beginning. Adam points his, sin to, points his finger to Eve, but actually ultimately points his finger to God, says, the woman you gave me, Lord. Eve blames it on the serpent. We blame our sins on others. Well, it's because of what she said to me that caused me to respond in such anger. Therefore, my sin is justified because of what so-and-so did. It's so easy. People are doing stuff, bad stuff to us all the time. Therefore, my sin's justified. We justify ourselves also by doubling down on our religious efforts. Oh, yeah, I might have slipped up right there, but oh, this next time, tomorrow, I'm going to do it so much better and so much stronger, and I'm going I'm to not fail this next time. And we double down and focus our efforts on doing the right thing again. Or we lower God's standard. We find a way to explain away the words of Scripture to not fully mean all that it says it means. And that's exactly what this man is doing right here. He's lowering God's standards. He is trying to move the goalposts so that his behavior fits and could earn him a gold star. Saying, oh, well, yeah, if neighbor's defined right here, then look, I measure up. 
Yay, lawyer. And so he asks, and who is my neighbor by chance? If you could just clarify that for me. Now, interestingly, the rabbis taught that all Jews were the neighbor of every Jew. Therefore, neighbor was defined ethnically. They were clear that Gentiles were not neighbors. They, weren't, they were, they were uh, somewhat undecided on the proselyte, the one who converted to Judaism. Some said not a neighbor, some said our neighbor. But it was clear on the Jew and the Gentile. Jew was a neighbor, Gentile wasn't. In fact, one rabbi said this, heretics, informers, and renegades should be pushed into the ditch and not pulled out. In another place, Jewish tradition taught that if a Gentile be in any danger of death, we are not bound to deliver them. For example, if any of them fall into the sea, you shall not need to take them out. For it is said, thou shalt not rise up against the blood of thy neighbor, but such a one is not thy neighbor. Do you see how they've narrowly defined what neighbor is? And so this man thought he was in a pretty good place. In other words, he no doubt expected Jesus to follow in line with what the the tradition of Judaism was, and for him to say, for Jesus to say, your neighbor are your relatives and your friends. And this man, maybe similar to the way the rich young ruler answered, would say, I have loved these from my youth. And then he would walk away basking in the praise that people would give him for how well he has loved his neighbor. And he would feel good about himself, justifying himself before God's command. But Jesus sees right through this. He knows that this man is asking the wrong question. He's trying to limit God's commands in order to increase his perceived righteousness. Because you see, friends, those who truly love do not need a list. They don't need a who's in and who's out list. They just need people with need. This man doesn't love because this man is still focused on himself. Love turns us outward to focus on others. But this man is only thinking about himself. Jesus knows exactly what he's trying to do. And like he did before, he will eventually get this man to answer his own question. But actually, he transforms the question. And he does this by telling a story beginning in verse 30. Verse 30, he sets the scene of this story. He says, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. This is a Jewish man, we can assume, because he's talking to Jews and he just identifies him as a Jew. And as we'll see later, there's ethnic realities going on in this passage. So we can assume this is a Jewish man. And he's traveling a well-known road between these two cities, between Jerusalem and Jericho. It's a road that's been traveled the same way, the same path for thousands of years because of the terrain. It's a path I traveled when I visited Israel. If you go today, you travel the same path. There's now a modern highway along that path, but it's the, essentially the exact same route. And so <clears throat> there's a map that I have just for you to be able to see this uh, route from Jerusalem down to Jericho. This road is remarkable in 
the elevation change. Jerusalem sits over 2,000 feet above sea level, and Jericho sits 800 or so feet below sea level. And so this road from Jerusalem to Jericho descends more than 3,300 feet over 17 or 18 miles. The land, and we can go to the, the picture, the next picture, the land that it transverses is a desert wilderness, rocky, desolate, barren. It's defined by deep valleys and sharp drop-offs and many rocky crags. And therefore, there's many places for thieves and bandits to hide and then attack passers-by. And again, there's no settlements along the way. You basically leave the Jerusalem area, the hill country, and you set out into this desolate Judean wilderness until you arrive at Jericho, which is known as the City of Palms, and there's great, there's springs there, and there's lots of life. But in between there, there's lots of desolation. Again, this is a, an aerial photo to see where it goes. This is another example of this path that goes through this rocky, barren wilderness that even apart from potential attackers, it's a perilous road. Now, this road has been down throughout antiquity known for its danger. In fact, in St. Jerome's day, it was known as the bloody way because of the blood that was shed by robbers. The Romans set up a garrison of soldiers on the road in order to help protect and others and make travel safer, but the violence still continued because of the length of the road and of the terrain. And so, you go to the next picture. Jesus, when Jesus tells the story about a man traveling down this road, and it says that he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead, it's not hard to imagine upon seeing this and knowing the history of this road. This is a, this is remnants of a, of a Roman road that is still visible today. Miles and miles of this that behind any rock or inside any cave, there could be an attacker waiting. And so these men, identified as robbers, fell upon this man. The man probably fought back, trying to save his possessions, his life, his dignity. But it says that they stripped him, they beat him, and they departed, leaving him half dead. They took everything he had, and they beat him within an inch of his life. He was left naked and bleeding along the side of the road, crumpled into a barely recognizable form. And this man's condition then sets up the drama that will unfold. Because one of the dynamics running through the story are the ethnic realities between the Jews and the Samaritans. And these, these groups were identifiable by their clothing. You could tell by looking at the way someone dressed whether they were a Jew or a Samaritan. Much like many religious communities today are identified by their dress. But here, this man is now stripped of everything that's identifiable. He is reduced to the level of simply being human. He doesn't belong to any ethnic group, any religious community. There's no identifying factors to him. And so the question is, who will help this man in such a state? Well, Jesus says in verse 31, now by chance a priest was going down that road. Coincidence 
This Greek word using of two events that line up. The beating of this man and this priest passing by happened to line up. This is not unheard of for a priest to follow this road. Jericho was a city in which priests and Levites lived, and so it was common for them to live in Jericho, and then they had two weeks out of the year that they needed to serve at the temple, and so they would then travel up this road to go serve their two weeks in Jerusalem, and then once their two weeks were done, they would travel back and go home to Jericho. This man, as a priest, was a part of the upper class of society. He no doubt was probably not even walking. He probably was riding an animal because of his wealth. And he was among the spiritual elite. He was known as a diligent observer of the law and thus as a godly man. He was seen as one who was following rightly God's word. Surely this man would help the injured man. But shockingly it says, verse 31, when he saw him, he passed by on the other side of the road. As he approaches this mangled body, he's faced with several dilemmas. If he stops to help this man, he potentially could put himself in danger of being attacked himself. The robbers could be nearby. They could be putting this man here as bait. And once someone stops to help, they jump them as well. But more likely, he's considering the reality of a ceremonial purity and the danger to his purity by interacting with this man. There could be clear defilement by getting close to him. For first, as we said, this, he doesn't even know if this man's Jewish. If it was, he would be faced with other issues, but, but this might be a Gentile. And just by getting close to interacting with him, he might become defiled. And the man's not speaking, so he couldn't ask him to, to talk. And he can't tell if he's dead or not. The law is clear that if you touch a corpse, then you become ceremonial, ceremonially unclean. I mean, this man could be so mangled and so bleeding that, that he doesn't know if this man's even alive still. But on top of that, the rabbi said that if you even got within four feet of a corpse, you became defiled. So he's not even going to get close to chance defilement. Now, the Old Testament and the Jewish law provided for ways to cleanse oneself from defilement, but it was a long, arduous process. It took a week, and they had to find a heifer and, and had to do all these sorts of things in order to make themselves purified again. Extremely inconvenient. And so, for the sake of convenience and for the sake of the moral high ground as he, as he viewed it, he decides not to dirty himself with such a situation and continues on down the road. Verse 32, though, Jesus says, So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him pass by on the other side. Not far behind is a Levite. Now the priest was also a Levite of the tribe of Levi, but within the tribe of Levi there was the family of Aaron who were the priests. This, the first man was a priest from the family of Aaron. This other man is a Levite, but not from the family of Aaron. These other Levites also assisted at the temple, also had many duties. They just didn't do the same duties as the priests. And so this man was also a holy man, a religious man. And so between the priest and the Levite, as Jesus presents this story, he's putting forward the best 
that Israel had to offer. This best represented Israel and their view of the law. The text says that he came to this place. He rounded the corner. He saw this man. And he may have gone a step closer than the priest to look at the body, but upon examination, he decides to pass by. Why? Well, again, it could be fear of robbers, again. But more than this, there's a very high likelihood that this man had seen the priest up ahead of him. On a road like this, you are, particularly when you're traveling alone, you're, you're looking to know who's around you, right? Your safety is always a high concern, and so you're conceived who's coming up behind, who's coming up the road from you, who's behind you. You're very aware of who else is on the road, and particularly in a time without cars and all the rest, uh, you could hear sounds of voices or animals. And so you're very aware of who's on the road. There's a very high likelihood that he had seen the priest who was his spiritual superior going on ahead of him. And so as he assesses this body, he's recognized that if he does something with this man, then it's going to say something about his view of his superior. Why would he stop if the priest did not? If he did stop and render aid, he could also be impugning the motives of his superior and potentially criticizing his interpretation of the law. Well, the priest considered the law and said this was not a situation to concern himself, and so how could he, the less professional one, the Levite, actually do this? And so it was that the two most devout men in Judaism failed to render any aid to a man whose life was ebbing from him. Better than any in Israel, these men were to know the law of God and were, would have boasted of their own track record in keeping it. In other words, this lawyer who's listened to the story could identify with the feelings and the interpretation and the way that these, this Levite and this priest would have lived. He himself is trying to live the same way. And Jesus knows that. And yet here in this story, they completely fail to love their neighbor. Now, up to this point, the, the, the narrative has a cadence to it. Jesus tells this with, with unique brevity, and yet it's, it's, it's beautifully put together. There's this cadence of someone comes, someone does something, someone leaves. Come, do, go. Come, do, go. And it happens three times. First with the robbers. They come, they do something, they depart. Next is the priest. They come. They see him, and then they, he leaves. Next is the Levite. He comes, he sees, and he departs. And so, by the very format of the narrative, Jesus is pairing together these two religious men with these robbers. That these three groups have done harm to this man. The first, the robbers, by their fists and weapons but the priest and the Levite by their neglect. The narrative abruptly changes in verse 33 in multiple ways. And these ways would have absolutely shocked the lawyer who was listening. First, in the Greek, the word Samaritan is the first word. Samaritan, Jesus pops out of the gate, but a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he departed. No. When he saw him, he had compassion. That word leaps off the page. 
because it was strikingly different than those who had come before. This, the lawyer probably expected that the next character in the story was to be just a regular Jewish layman because he went from priest to Levite and he was probably was going next to the lowest in Jewish society to just say an average Jew. But Jesus totally flips the script and writes in an outsider, a Samaritan. Samaritans were a group of people living in central Israel and Samaria who were of mixed ethnicity. Originally, they were uh, Jews, but as the northern tribes were exiled away, Assyria brought in people from other exiled nations, and they were brought in to this area, and thus they intermarried. And so the result was, in this area of Israel, there was this intermixing of Jews and Gentiles. And so they no longer remained full-blooded Jews. The Samaritans, though, somewhat followed the Old Testament, but they only followed the first five books, the Pentateuch, first five books of Moses. Even to this day, the Samaritans only hold to those books as authoritative. And so they are kind of like Jews. They seem to follow a lot. They have priests and sacrifices. But they don't travel to Jerusalem to worship. They, they worship at Mount Gerizim. And because of these differences, you can understand there was great animosity that grew up between these two groups, the Jews and the Samaritans. And this animosity is all through, you see all throughout the Gospels. You think of the woman at the well in John 4 was a Samaritan woman. And the Jews, when they were in Galilee of the north, and they needed to go to Jerusalem for a festival, they would not go the straight route all the way through Samaria to get to Jerusalem. They would go out to the, the Jordan Rift Valley. They would go down the Jordan Rift Valley, and then they would cut up this road that we've been talking about to go up towards Jerusalem. They would avoid Samaria altogether. The Jews hated the Samaritans. In fact, they would say to eat any food given to you by a Samaritan was like eating swine flesh, which in Jewish kosher law was extremely insulting. Therefore, to hear of a Samaritan entering the story would have evoked the strongest revulsion from this lawyer. But Jesus takes it a step further. He doesn't just include a Samaritan. He makes a Samaritan the hero of the story where every party previously had come, done something, and left, the Samaritan comes and stays. He didn't leave. He didn't go anywhere. It says when he had compassion on him, he, or when he saw him, he had compassion. This word, compassion, has to do with the innards or the bowels. It was the way the ancients talked about this deep love that someone would have for someone else. Their, their, their insides were moved for this person. In other words, this guy had a gut-level reaction to this crumpled man on the side of the road, and it drove him to action. He didn't sit and consider what he was to do. He instantly, out of his compassion, rushed to the man's side. Notice verse 34, he went to him. He approached this man, the first one to actually come alongside this hurting and bleeding man. He crosses whatever barriers are there, whatever dangers might be lurking. He doesn't care. He's going to minister to these man's needs. And he starts with basic first aid. He binds up the wounds and uses oil and wine to treat the bruises and gashes. 
This was, it was common in those days for olive oil to be used and wine as well to treat wounds. It's possible that this man even tore his own garments as to make strips for binding this man up. He instantly begins to give of himself. But then it says, then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. This man transports the wounded man to an inn. He sets him upon his own animal, probably a donkey. He then leads the animal to a, this place of recuperation. Even in this act of placing the man upon his own animal and leading the animal by the reins was a sign of humility from this Samaritan. Those who sat upon the animal were given the respect. Those who led the animal were often the servants. Therefore, this Samaritan is showing, even by this act, that he was his deference for this broken and wounded man. Notice that when he got to the inn, he stayed overnight to care for him. It says he brought him to an inn and took care of him. And then it says the next day he talks to the innkeeper. He stayed the night. And this simple act of staying by his bedside displayed self-denial, generous love, and even great courage. You say, why courage? Well, consider that this Samaritan is in foreign territory. He's not in his home country where everyone appreciates who he is. In fact, there's great animosity for him. He knew that he very well could be the man who was injured. He very well could be the man who was attacked for his ethnicity. Now, wherever this inn was located, we don't know, but it probably wasn't along the road. He probably had to go to Jericho or probably go back up to the Jerusalem area. It was in Jewish territory, though. And so, therefore, the locals would not enjoy seeing a Samaritan rolling into town. Now, he could have done like a secret drop-off, dropped the man off at an inn, placed some money on him, and got out of town just to, to save, his, save himself, but he doesn't. Again, there's great risk because of the hatred towards him. And th consider this. He's walking into town with a wounded Jewish man, and he's a Samaritan. He very well could be blamed for the condition of that man. I read one author who compared it, compared it to uh, America in 1875, the fights between the Indians and the cowboys. You know that classic? Think of... A Plains Indian in 1875 walking into Dodge City with a scalped cowboy on his horse, checking into a room over the local saloon and staying the night to take care of him. What do you think people might suppose? They might assume that this Indian had everything to do with this man's condition. And the same is true in this story. The Samaritan's love is costing him much, but he doesn't hold back. He gives it all. And that's what verse 35 goes to tell us. Look at it. Verse 35. And the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Two denarii were enough to pay for a, a, in, a stay at an inn like this for at least three to four weeks, potentially up to two months. And so his love and his compassion drove him to care for this man even when he wasn't present. He wanted to make sure that this recuperating stranger did not lack a single thing. 
And so he made sure that was all taken care of. In all of this, the Samaritan showed unexpected love to a stranger, to one in need, even though it cost him time, money, effort, and personal danger. And so Jesus, after telling the story, then wraps it up by asking, which of these three, verse 36, do you think, O lawyer, proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? By asking this question, Jesus changes the question, doesn't he? It's no longer, who is my neighbor, but who should I be a neighbor to? Jesus says, who proved to be a neighbor? The question is, are you a neighbor, not who is your neighbor? The point Jesus is making is that our love is not to be limited by any man-made categories or barriers. Our love is to be limitless. And the lawyer answers Jesus' question by humbly saying, the one who showed him mercy. He can't bring himself to actually say Samaritan, so he says, the one who showed him mercy. The point of Jesus' parable was unavoidable even for this self-righteous man. And so Jesus ends verse 37 and says to him, you go and do likewise. Jesus was pressing again upon this man the requirement that this man must love as he has just described. This man must love like the Samaritan in his story. The standard that this man needs to live up to is high. He needs to judge himself by the way that the Samaritan acted. Because this, Jesus is saying, is what God meant back in Leviticus 19.18 of what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus' standard of loving our neighbor is high for us as well, isn't it? And we ask ourselves, do we love like this? Do we love without limits? Do we care to serve all those in need that we come across? Is our heart that stirred with compassion when we see the need around us? Once again, we have to realize that we fall short, right? We find ourselves pierced by the standard of God's word. We know we must love all that come upon our path. Our love is to be generous, not stingy. We're to be giving ourselves to those around us, even if it costs us, because we are disciples of Jesus, and we follow his word, and we give ourselves for others. This is Christ's radical call to love, even enemies, even those who hate us. And yet I ask, who is able to truly love this way? We all fall short. We fail to live this selflessly. We don't have the resources to pull together enough love and enough affection. And so friends, as we see ourselves before the standard of God's word, the call to love God with all that we are and the call to love others selflessly as ourselves, we recognize our Failure to do so. We must turn to Jesus himself. In him we find forgiveness for our failure to love as we should. In him we find full payment for our sin, our sin of our lack of love. In Jesus we find compassion and understanding for the difficulty to love. In him we find the greatest example of one loving his enemies. In him we find help to love difficult people. Friends, if we're going to love at all, as Jesus calls us to, 
we must lean completely upon him to produce that love within us. And so in light of this, there are two prayers we need to pray this week. First, Lord, open my eyes to the needs of others around me. So often we can go through our lives and we can miss the needs. We miss the needs of coworkers. We miss the needs of family members because we're not asking the right questions because we're not, we're not keeping our eyes open to the hints, to the pain, the things that are going on in their lives. Lord, open my eyes to the needs of others around me. And secondly, Lord, give me a heart of compassion for those people that translates into action. Help me not to just see the need, but may I have a gut-level reaction to those needs that translates into action. Now, friends, there are a lot of ways that these principles that we've outlined this morning can be applied. And we're going to look at those more specifically next week because I believe this opens really a whole cornucopia of questions for us about what does it mean for us to live in this day, in our time, how do we truly love? What does love look like? For example, does this passage teach that the church should be involved in eradicating poverty around the world in every social cause that we can? Does this passage teach that we're to give everything away to anyone we meet who's asking? Or how do we meet physical needs with spiritual needs as we talk with people, as we interact with people around us? These, are, these and many more questions we'll look at next week because we, need to, we want to live faithfully to these commands. We want to love without limits. And we need to know how to do that wisely and do that well. But this week, let's begin to ask the questions, Lord, what are the needs around me and how can I have compassion on those around me? Let's bow together in prayer. Our Father, we ask that you would please work within our hearts. First, may we be faced with the reality that we are unable to love as you've called us to, that we do not love you as we should, we do not love our neighbor as we should, that we are often stingy, selfish, hard-hearted. Father, forgive us for not loving with abandon. And I pray, Lord, that you would open our eyes this week Help us to see those who are hurting around us, those who are in need that we can help. And Lord, give us the courage and the compassion that causes us to act in a helpful and loving way. Not so that we'd receive the glory for loving in such meritorious ways, but so that Christ would receive the glory for his work in our hearts and his transformation of our attitudes. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.